Yeah, I should just do a Twitch stream. I should do a Twitch stream. If I'm going to do these every day, I might as well just get on Twitch, right? What's Twitch? Is that is that where a guy just gets on screen and he just twitches? Probably. That probably exists. Kind of like that story I was talking about a few months ago where it came out that all these teenage girls had developed Tourette-like symptoms. A bunch of teenage girls in in America developed Tourette-like symptoms because they were watching some TikTok star who either has Tourette's or he pretends to have Tourette's. And they watched so many of these guys' videos, so many of this guy's videos, that they themselves started to involuntarily take on Tourette's symptoms. Sounds like magic to me. Just shows you how susceptible we are. But it wouldn't surprise me if there's a guy, it wouldn't surprise me if that guy's on Twitch. Wouldn't surprise me if the, the, the guy who twitches is on Twitch, huh? I've only seen Twitch once. Uh, there's a guy, he was involved with, uh, I guess you'd call him a subversive comedy troupe, what we would call a subversive comedy troupe. And he kind of broke off some years back and he started doing Twitch streams. I think he makes, I think he pays bills that way. But he's a funny guy, kind of an out there guy. And I ended up watching, he made an, he made an announcement online. He's like, I'm live on Twitch. Oh, I'm live on Twitch. And I went to it just out of curiosity because I like him. Didn't like it at all, though. I didn't like the interface. Didn't like the interface. I felt like I had a, a software program open. That's what it looks like. It looks like you have a software program open. And I guess the whole idea is it's interactive. It just wasn't my thing. I think I'm going to stick to this. Oh, you can find every night to school night on Twitch. Oh, I'm live streaming to nobody. But uh, anyway, uh, earlier today, I, I, I probably listened to eight hours of classical music today because I got this music box. Or I, I found this box of music boxes. It's a giant music box with a bunch of smaller music boxes in it. No, I found a cardboard box filled with old music boxes. So I'm trying to look them up. I've already sold one. It was a John Denver song, of all things. It was a John Denver song in this antique music box. And someone paid me like $100 for it. Good deal for me. But uh, most of them are labeled, but I have one that isn't labeled. So I spent all day playing just, I typed into YouTube. I was like famous classical music. Just these, it's like four and a half hours. Each video is like four and a half hours of famous classical music. Because I, this melody is, I know it so well. Because there's this one music box, and it has kind of a, I don't know if it's supposed to be the Madonna and baby Jesus, but it's this kind of Madonna-looking woman with a baby. And uh, I just cannot figure out what the melody is for the life of me. I know it so well. I'm going to play it for you, actually. If you recognize this melody, here, we, I might as well do a Twitch stream where I just play music boxes. Might as well just lose my mind completely and do a a Twitch stream where I just play music boxes and ask people what the melody is. People would probably love that. But I'm going to play this little melody from this music box here. And if I haven't figured it out on my own somehow and you hear this, please contact me. 
please let me know if you know what song this is. Even if you know the composer, I don't care if you know the title, if you know anything, because I know this, it's so goddamn familiar. But I can't figure it out because it's not labeled. So I'm going to play you a little, just the melody here real quick. And uh, if you don't already have my contact information, you can contact me at the underscore harness at hotmail.com. And let me know. If you don't already have my contact information and you hear this melody and can help me identify it, please let me know. The underscore harness at hotmail.com. So I'm going to play the melody here. that but um yeah if you have any idea i mean i i can see the movies i mean it's played in the background of movies and stuff but i just i don't know it offhand because i mean that's the case for most classical music you know most classical music you've heard a million times but you would never know exactly which composer and i mean that might not for all i know that's not even classical music <laughs> you know because any melody that's put into a music box is going to sound classical i mean I just mentioned that the other one I sold was a John Denver song. Like if I if that wasn't labeled, I'd probably be like, "What what classical song is this?" And it turns out to be a John Denver tune. But that one that one sounds so familiar, it has to be classical. But I spent all day just everything I've been doing today, I've had a backdrop of classical, which I do every now and again. And those are good days. You know, whenever you have a day like that, where you just got classical music on. And I hate to be that guy who's like, you ever heard of classical music? Oh, these kids today, they, they don't just sit around listening to classical music. Oh, it's, you see that with kind of newer conservatives who are trying to be very traditional. They're fetishizing tradition. And they're like, you ever heard of classical music, huh? Oh, I sit around listening to classical. I, I, I listen to... Uh, they memorize the names of these guys. Because sometimes I'll be listening to something... I mean, it happened today where I had this playing and I'd hear a particular song and I'd be like, this is my thing, you know, because you obviously hear a bunch of stuff that's just ruined. You know, you'll, you'll hear some classical music and it's just you just immediately remember the Looney Tunes cartoon scene that featured that. But other stuff like there's stuff that comes up that I don't remember hearing ever. And I go, I got to remember this one. And I'll be like, I'm going to remember the composer and the title of this one and then i immediately forget it but you know it's it's funny when people fetishize that kind of thing and they're like i'm getting into this new music you probably you know yeah you know it's it's a uh, called classical music there's that kind of attitude but it does feel good and i have these days you know a few times a year where i'll just throw on classical music and it does give a good backdrop to my day it does do something and, you know, I think having a soundtrack like that now and again is good for you. 
and I don't care about the studies. I, you know, I don't. Oh, I, 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 there's this study that says if you listen to if you listen to classical music, that uh, your brain works better. Your brain works better, and you can you can solve math problems. Oh, if you're doing your homework, if you listen to classical, it's it, 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 your brain improves. It's probably true though. It is pure. It is like breathing fresh, snowy mountain air to listen to. But I always think about this with just various people outside of classical music, just that people aren't listening to music very often that has triumphant melody. And coming from a background like being deeply invested in highly niche heavy metal you know, triumphant melody has just been a part of my life in various ways. Unique and triumphant melody. And yes, yeah, some classical music, like it just sounds like audio wallpaper. You just feel like you're listening to wallpaper, which isn't a bad thing, but it doesn't really do anything for you. But sometimes a, a particular melody or a particular song will come on and just you do feel like you could fight the world. And it's funny because, like I said, like I've been listening to it all day trying to find that music, uh, that music box melody that I just played. And it hasn't come up. I haven't found that melody yet. I don't know how and where to look for it. But, uh, you know, I, like tonight I spent two hours. I went to one of those sites and I never go to these. I went to one of those pages that's, it's just like guys doing cool things it's all framed around just men doing cool things and it's everything from like cheesy baby boomer like look what this guy did for a kid with cancer to like look at this guy he saved this animal who was stuck in a hole oh this animal was stuck in a well and these men found an ingenious way to save it or a guy doing something heroic just feel-good stories about men doing things. There's a bunch of those around these days. They're good, though. As cheesy as they are, as much as you do feel like some sort of baby boomer, basically just like a chain letter. Like, let me tell you about what this guy did. You know, even though you do feel that way, they're true stories, <laughs> you know? And you watch videos of this, you know, and you, you, you hear people, you see these stories. But I, I ended up... At, just randomly ended up there. I, I didn't seek it out, but I ended up on one of those pages where it was just like men doing cool things. And I had this backdrop of classical music while I was watching and looking at this stuff. And I was seriously just weeping the whole time. I spent about two straight hours tonight, just classical music blaring, watching videos, looking at screen caps of men doing good things. And just weeping, not bawling, not like wang, you know, not wang, wah, you know, not crying like a baby, but just quietly weeping. And it felt good. I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to be doing tonight. You know, because I mean, I'll always cry. I mean, I haven't seen Platoon in many years, but in Platoon, the scene where the music, the soundtrack, is just blasting. And the helicopter is leaving the jungle when everybody's getting out and they leave Elias behind Willem Dafoe's character. They think he's dead and I think they leave him behind. And there's that scene where the music just, it's like a, what they call a crescendo. 
a little crescendo. A little shout out to Elliot Offen there, if you know who that is. I wonder where he belongs. I don't. I don't know if, even know if he's still alive. But the elegant Elliot Offen, back before Howard Stern was just a complete hack. Maybe he always was, but back when Howard Stern was just enjoyable at all, he used to have this guy on named Elegant Elliot. Elegant Elliot Offen, and he was he dressed like a woman, but like he was a perv. You know, he he wore this weird. He would wear like kind of like a speedo sort of outfit with leggings. And he had this, the front of the Speedo stuffed, but not just with like a sock. It was like a mound. It was as if he put a bunch of stuff in his crotch that just it turned the entire front of his pelvis into a disgusting mound, almost like the way a fat person would look, like what they call it. They have some term for that, some stupid term, like a fupa or something. I hate to even say a fupa. Oh, that's, that's the, it's called a fupa, you know, but that's, that's what I'm referring to. And so he had that. It was just like this big mound. And he wasn't a big fat guy or anything. So he just had this mound in in the front of his kind of speedo. And he had long hair, big hook nose. Kind of looked like Tiny Tim, if I remember right. And he was well known in New York. Very eccentric, angry guy. And he would come on Howard Stern. And it was always a confrontation. Like, he always brought drama. He was always arguing. He was always flying off the handle legitimately. He was a legitimately weird guy. Like, he, I remember he had this whole thing where he, because there's a, I've never been, to, I've never been to New York. I don't know where I got this accent, but I, I've never even been to New York. I haven't, but there's a famous deli there called the Stage Delicatessen. And I guess Elliot, Elegant Elliot, spent a lot of time there. And he got kicked out, I think, because he was because the thing is, it's, it's not just that he was on Howard Stern confronting people. He was known for confronting people just going about his day. So he had this sort of conflict and drama in his life all the time. And so when he would go on Howard Stern, like if he wasn't arguing with Howard about something, he would be telling some story about a, a daily conflict that he went through. And he got kicked out of the stage delicatessen. And he'd always be like, I got kicked out of the stage delicatessen. I, I don't remember his voice. But anyway, why, why am I talking about Elegant Elliot? Why am I talking about Elegant Elliot? I haven't thought about him in a long time. I haven't thought about Elegant Elliot in probably 15 years. It's worth thinking about him. What what brought him to mind? Elegant Elliot. I don't know. Who knows? But... I was talking about crying and listening to classical music and looking at videos of people doing things. Oh, the crescendo. That's what it was. And he would always he would always say, like, that's my crescendo. I don't know if you pronounce it crescendo or crescendo. I don't know how to pronounce foreign words. But he would say, like, that's my crescendo. Like, so he was like, I, I don't even know what he was talking about. Because he obviously had his own insular lexicon, his own internal lexicon for referring to things, but he would yell a lot, so I assume that that's what he was referring to, his crescendo. But anyway, platoon, <laughs> you know, it just made me think of Elegant Elliot. I'll, I'll, every time I hear the word crescendo, crescendo, however you say it, I'll always think of Elegant Elliot often because 
he had this he had he had made that one of his words that was part of his vocabulary and he used it often no pun intended but uh elegant ellie often look him up i wonder if he's still alive i wonder what his role is in the current state of affairs if he hasn't completely lost his mind i mean he already did so maybe he's completely normal and straight laced now maybe as the world's gotten more weird elegant elliot often has become more normal but anyway in a platoon there's like that scene where there's the crescendo of where the music is just blasting and elias is running through the jungle and the helicopter's leaving and that seriously has always made me cry just that same sort of silent weeping there's a lot of manly stuff that does that war movies like if there's not at least one scene in a war movie where you're crying as the music is playing and and there's heroic and horrible things happening on a battlefield i don't know what to tell you that stuff always speaks to me and i know it's made to do that i know those scenes are done because they know that they're going to pull at the heartstrings of men Like I saw Saving Private Ryan in the theater and there were these two old men there and, you know, that was, I don't know when that movie came out, over 20 years ago, I think. But there were these two old men there. I don't don't know if they were World War II veterans. I don't know if they were veterans at all. But one of them was just weeping, just bawling his eyes out during the opening war scene where like there's the guy with his intestines coming out. And at the time, I was like, that guy must be a veteran. Like, maybe that guy was there, but maybe not. Maybe it just spoke to him, too. But the thing is, there's a huge myth about men crying, and I know I've addressed this before, but at some point, like, this this narrative shifted from women talking about the horrible things men do to them, which are real. And sometimes you'll hear kind of neoconservatives and reactionaries push back too hard on that and be like all this stuff that women say men do isn't real men don't sexually harass women men don't rape women men don't abuse women of course they do you know but sometimes there's this reactionary response that's like women are making everything up every woman they're not you know i've known more than one female friend who's been legitimately sexually assaulted i've known many who have been legitimately harassed i've also known women who have made shit up like to some degree exaggerated things distorted things but i've seen some messages and stuff that just blow my mind like i've had female friends show me some messages they've received on facebook from random guys messages they've received on dating apps and it does blow my mind some of the things people will say. So, uh, you know, all of that stuff is legitimate. You know, men do horrible things to women, and we know that. And I don't really understand why that's become something that conservatives push back on so much. Because I thought that conservatives were fans of chivalry. And the roots of chivalry come from the fact that men do horrible things to women, which is why chivalry involves being protective. It's why chivalry isn't just this idea that like women can't do anything for themselves and so men must save them all the time and stand in for them. 
It's not a, some white knight thing. It's also chivalry comes from the fact that women are susceptible to men overpowering them and doing horrible things to them. So other men, particularly the men in a woman's life, have to be able to stand in and do something about it or at least make their presence known. And that seems to be something that conservatives like, like they like chivalry, but I think sometimes they forget the roots of chivalry. And it doesn't help when these fake stories come out. That's just the sad thing about it all, is that there are these fake and distorted stories that come out about harassment. Like when the Me Too thing happened, I think there was a positive aspect to that. And I I remember talking about it on here. I remember saying that, like, I'm not opposed to the Me Too thing. Like, I saw a lot of pushback from people who were like, Me Too was just a bunch of nonsense. There was actually good that came from it. I mean, you look at, like, it took down a guy like Harvey Weinstein. You know, who can disagree with that? You know, a, a predatory hypocrite. You know, this guy who stood with Hillary Clinton... This big Democrat who said all the right things, meanwhile, was one of the biggest predators in an extremely predatory industry. You know, it took down people like him. That was a direct result of the Me Too thing. Of course, a bunch of other women, you know, may have exaggerated some things or it turned into this sort of false equivalency where every possible thing that's ever said to a woman that could be construed a certain way is equal to the worst possible thing. And you get into treacherous territory when you even address that. But I mean, there was certainly, there were certainly many positive outcomes, at least when it came to specific instances with the whole me too thing, which is why I don't reject it outright. And uh, it was in favor of some aspects of it, but it's so dang complicated to address, you know, it's, but, uh, You know, I've witnessed, in addition to hearing some stories from people I trust, people who were comfortable telling me stories, I've heard some horrible things, you know, that have happened to women friends of mine. And they didn't, I mean, and actually the opposite, like they never did anything like they've, they don't address it publicly. They also brought it up very casually, which is interesting. And I, without, without exposing anybody, I guess. A couple women friends who I've been close to in my adult life, when they told me about being raped, and not in graphic detail, but just the simple fact of it, what amazed me about it is they were both very casual about it. And one of them even kind of had a sense of humor about it. Not that that she had a sense of humor about what happened, but just kind of had a little bit of a sense of humor. You know, maybe that's a way of dealing with it. But it was really interesting to me how casual they were about it. And one of them even said, you know, whenever I've mentioned this to men, they're way more uncomfortable with it than I am. And uh, just an interesting, you know, it might not describe everybody, but the people who have told me about it, a couple of them, it was interesting to me that they were very casual about it. But neither of them has ever been public about it. Neither of them has ever used it. Even though they could, they've never really used it to get anything or to prove anything. 
but uh, and, and if they wanted to, they could, you know, I mean, that's a big deal that if that's happened to you. And when you address that reality, I mean, you, of course, get pushback from, you know, these sort of reactionary types who have gotten into this mindset where because some women have lied or some women have exaggerated or distorted their own experiences that you have to give pushback on every story or the entire idea of that happening when I can tell you it's an absolute reality. I always say on here, you know, men are the primary rapists and killers and they rape and kill women. That doesn't make me some kind of white knight for saying that. I'm not a white knight at all. I'm actually quite hard on women in many ways. Not in a mean sense, but just I want to see everybody do better, which is an awful phrase that I shouldn't say because people are now using that in this socio-political sense, but I mean in a self-improvement sense. Just strengthening yourself. Anyway, I've already wandered into the maze. Might as well keep going. Might as well keep wandering. But anyway, you know, the point I'm getting at here is the roots of chivalry come from all that, too. And I think sometimes conservatives, especially reactionary types, new conservatives who are rebelling against their leftist origins, which is a whole interesting type of person to observe. The new conservative, the sort of, the new kind of counterculture conservative who was a leftist or a liberal just a few years ago, they're very interesting to observe, and I make it a point to pay attention to them. Because my own conservative qualities, I've been aware of them since my late teens, so to see people who have kind of gone through this transformation in recent years, and they might be a little bit younger, I'm not sure, the, the kind of current state of culture might have influenced them to their current position. But I noticed that they have a tendency to give pushback. Like, it, it almost seems like they're trying to prove to everybody they're a true conservative. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they were liberal just a few years ago. And probably in their heart, they still feel liberal in some ways. So you see where like those people have a tendency to attack moderates a lot. They have a tendency to att attack centrists. They have a tendency to go after people who actually see the world more like them, but not exactly. Like they'll go after liberals who are free speech advocates, which I'm always like, don't go after those people right now. I hope we get to a point where it makes sense to split hairs between those people. But don't get mad at people for not being as openly conservative as you, if you even are. Because you probably pretend to be liberal with most of your friends anyway, depending on where you live. Or at least don't speak all your views. So don't get mad at Bill Maher. Don't get mad at some you know, center left podcast because they're not openly proclaiming themselves conservatives like you. 
you're revealing yourself to be new to the cause that you're supporting. You're, you're trying to fake it till you make it. You know in your heart that you were a leftist four years ago, five years ago, and you're trying really hard to prove that you're not. And to someone like me who's just kind of watched all of this develop, it's clear as day what you're doing. And don't forget the roots of all this stuff. Don't forget where chivalry comes from. Because that's what I see when I, when I see people... I don't know, I just think they've forgotten the roots of some of the values they have because they're either new to them or they're, you know, the, the other type is that sort of neoconservative who's sort of the opposite of those types where this, this neoconservative who's been so entrenched in Republican rhetoric their entire life that they've completely forgotten the roots of their values as well. But if there weren't predatory men, we'd have far less need for chivalry. And you can interpret the word chivalry any way you want. I'm using it in a fairly general sense. I'm not talking about knights going, my lady. I'm not talking about politeness. I'm not talking about chivalrous language or, or chivalrous this sort of protocol or manners. I'm just talking about the purpose of chivalry, why it exists, and it exists for a reason, non-performative chivalry, practical chivalry, because I believe in practical chivalry. <laughs> but anyway, uh, going back to men crying, which is what prompted all this, You know, this sort of this this mutation happened where women were talking about so-called toxic masculinity for years based on the way men treated them. And the reason I just went on that whole rant is because many of those complaints were valid. Many of those complaints were valid. Men rape us, kill us and abuse us. And of course, there are other, you know, negative interactions that lead up to those. I don't think every single one that women have complained about is necessarily valid. Like mansplaining, which I feel like I get a, uh, a tiny little arrow fired into my eyeball just saying that. But it's the word that they use. And like many buzzwords, maybe there was something, maybe there was a behavior that men do where they try to explain things to women like they're little kids or they're stupid. And maybe it was based on the fact that they think women don't know better. You know, maybe there was a real behavior. I don't know. I'm not a woman. But maybe there was a real behavior that men do to women. And women were like, well, let's call that mansplaining. But then when that came a buzzword, I saw it in people I know. I saw it in people I don't know where because that was a buzzword and people were like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Oh, it's a thing. 
You can see where they started looking for excuses to use it. And now every time a man tries to say anything to a woman, you'll hear them be like, oh, this guy mansplained to me today. Oh, my God. He, this guy, he, you know, he, he totally, he, he's, this guy at work was mansplaining to me. And then they tell you what he actually did. And you're like, it doesn't, sounds like he was just trying to have conversation. And it involved him describing something from his point of view. But because you, because this term was introduced to you some years ago, and probably did describe a real interaction that some men have with women, but now you're looking for opportunities to use it because that's the poison of buzz phrases. That's the that's the poison of buzzwords and catchphrases. What I call buzz phrases uh, is that once a buzzword or a new catchphrase is introduced, it very well might describe a real phenomenon that should be maybe pointed out but then people like the buzzword and they start looking for opportunities to use it especially in a culture that fetishizes adversity that manufactures adversity that fetishizes a certain type of victimhood you can see where something like mansplaining it just it has no meaning anymore and people are just so ready to use it and it defeats the whole purpose of why that catchphrase was even invented to describe something that women felt was a real phenomenon. I, again, I can't tell you if it's real or not. And it seems like the examples I hear about in the last few years, they just kind of seem like people looking to have a problem with a man when he means well. Another absurd one was, you know, man spreading anything with man. Anything like that is just bad. It's a bad phrase. But manspreading is another one where the whole idea that men are going out of their way to make women uncomfortable by sitting with their legs wide. I mean, I'm doing it right now, pretty much. I'm alone by myself on a couch. And I have my, le my, my knees are quite far apart. And I saw where like women will take pictures of a man sitting in public. And they look for opportunities to be like, look, he's manspreading. And as men have pointed out, like, we, all, we have something between our legs, you know. We have something that can be very uncomfortable. I mean, I, I hate to even go into, you know, to that aspect because everybody does it. But still, it's just the truth where it's like, you don't know what it's like to have a nutsick that gets caught between your legs. It is comfortable to have a, if you have a male, if you have male anatomy, it is comfortable to keep your legs at least a little bit far apart, to not like have your knees knocking together to say the least. Maybe there's a real phenomenon where some depraved men purposely make their legs as far apart as possible because they don't care about other people's, uh, sense of space you know maybe there's a real phenomenon there but it's just you can see where like when that became a term women started looking for opportunities to point it out even when a guy is just sitting naturally i've seen online where women will take photos of random strangers in public completely i think taking a picture of a random man in public and putting his face and his body all over the internet to shame him 
I think that's worse than him sitting with his legs a little bit far apart. But you can see where that kind of segued into, you know, where some of these talking points started with women very validly pointing out the horrible things that men do to them. And, you know, I questioned the the term toxic masculinity from the start. I think that was a bad term from the start. But you can see where that segued into women talking about the way other men interact. Where it started with women rightfully talking about how they felt men were treating them, which they're allowed to talk about. You know, they are allowed to, if they feel that men are doing horrible things to them, and there are certainly statistics to back that up, you know, that's one thing, and that makes complete sense. But then it kind of bled into all of these more subtle behaviors that relied on assumption, for one, and also involved a degree of exaggeration and distortion. But then it turned into this thing where women were talking about toxic masculinity between men. And that's where I draw a line where it's like, are there ways that other men interact with each other that aren't good or that encourage negative behaviors? Sure. But what do you know about that? What do you personally know about that? And sure, some you know, weak men came forward and they're like, yeah, you know, the bullies, oh, you know the way men talk, but like those guys haven't even really experienced much of it themselves, you know, like those guys were the guys who always had a problem with, with other men who have a certain level of insecurity. And so you have people who really aren't qualified to talk about the way men interact with each other. And that's where the whole crying thing comes in because Most of the people I've heard talk about how men discourage each other from crying and come down on each other for showing emotion. Most of the people who comment on that are women. I've heard very few men, no men that I personally know. I've never had a single male friend and I have all kinds of male friends. I have friends who are more macho. I have friends who aren't macho at all. I'm friends with artists. I've been friends with dudes who just watch sports. My male relatives are, they were born in the 1940s and 50s. And they, uh, they're, they lean very conservative. They're very stoic. You know, so I know men of all ages, of all types, and I've never had a single one complain or or talk about how i've never had a single one say like men shouldn't show emotion like oh men shouldn't cry men shouldn't do this that's not what it is to be a man why don't you be more of a man all of these things that people talk about and i played football as anybody who listens to this show knows i played youth football i've never had a football coach and you could say oh maybe that's the time and place you grew up in you're from western washington You were born in 1985, but you'd think that given how much this is talked about and how much I have been involved in macho things in my life, how many of my interests would be called macho, you'd think at some point that that would have come up. 
you think, and maybe somebody else has experienced it, I don't know, but I'm just speaking for myself here. You'd think given how much this is a toxic, uh, a talking point, uh, you know, this, this toxic masculinity idea is a talking point. You'd think that I of all people would have come across it. Maybe if I was born in the 1940s, I would feel differently. You know, maybe men were much harder then. But people talk about it like this is still ever present. Maybe if I grew up in the South, I would have had all these men in my life saying, don't you ever freaking cry. Boys don't cry. I can tell you that men don't like emotion from other men if they feel it's unnecessary. Nobody's ever said anything, but I've certainly felt that. And I feel that way myself. Like if a friend of mine, and you know, I've seen many of my friends cry over the years for one reason or another. I've heard many of them be upset about one thing or another. If I feel they're being emotional about something unnecessary, something stupid, something petty, it does kind of irritate me. I don't even know what that is. It's not conditioning. Nobody conditioned me to respond that way. And I feel it from them too. But nobody's ever like shamed me and I've never shamed anybody else. Even older generations of men that I've known who are very stoic and conservative. But what I have picked up on is that men respect another man for crying if they feel that he's crying for the right reasons. And maybe that's where all this comes from. Maybe this is where the confusion comes from is that maybe women don't feel that you need, maybe they don't understand the concept that there are, there's a right reason to cry. Like if your mom dies and you're crying, unless he's, unless somebody's a complete psychopath or they've just been traumatized to a horrific point. I don't know anybody who, who's going to come down on you for crying about your mom's death. Like maybe if you call somebody on the phone repeatedly crying about it, but it's like if your mom just dies and you weep, I, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe somebody will be a little bit uncomfortable because we always feel uncomfortable when someone kind of loses it. But I, I just don't know. I've never known any men, certainly not macho men, the macho man, Randy Savage, but. I've just never known any men who would come down on another men. And in a way, you respect it when a man cries for the right reason. And going back to like platoon, to the movie Platoon, like crying during the scene or just weeping. I hate to even say crying because when you say crying, you know, that's so open-ended. Like that could mean wailing like a baby and sobbing. But I'm just talking about tears coming to your eye feeling a spell of emotion like I've been watching movies with other guys before growing up and like you'll watch something like that and you know that everybody's crying you know there's a tear in people's eyes you don't call attention to it but nobody's upset about it because it's kind of understood that certain things as a man make you feel that way and nobody's upset about it Maybe, like I said, I can't speak for men that are born in a different part of the country, men who are born in a different time before I was born. 
But you'd think this was going on all the time, especially in macho circles when it comes to macho subject matter. But in my experience, there's sort of an understanding that there is a, a right reason to cry. And I think men understand that when something is glorious and heroic, there's nothing wrong with a tear coming to your eye. If something is personally just... If you experience something that is unbelievably sad, like the death of your mom, the death of, of your dad, somebody who's very important to you, the death of your pet, you know, it's kind of understood that that's okay. You don't make a show of it. But that's just, it comes back to this thing where it's like, I don't know when... I don't know exactly when this started happening, but at some point, the conversation around so-called toxic masculinity shifted from women talking about the way men treat them to talking about the way men treat each other. And maybe not all men like that. I don't like every, I don't like every way that men interact with each other. But it's not all just programmed into our heads to behave that way. Because it kind of gets into this idea that society is this mythical supernatural force turning us into terrible people for what purpose, I don't know, just to make life worse. But it's like society is a response. I mean, my opinion, I don't think there's any way we'll ever know because, I mean, how do you separate the idea of community from society like society developed, it evolved alongside us. It wasn't like a bunch of random families got together in the prehistoric age, whenever humans developed, and said, hey, you know what? You know, uh, we're evolving and we've reached a point where what do you guys think about forming a society? Oh, and let's make sure that we do this to women. Oh, and you know what? Let's make sure that men aren't allowed to cry. You know, it, it evolved organically. You know, society evolved organically alongside human beings. Therefore, it reflected some natural tendencies, good and bad. But because society became an institution, it also reinforced and encouraged certain natural behaviors and made them malignant, which is why I always talk about these things as two sides of a coin. Where it's like that aspect of men that is predatory and violent that's the dark side of the coin. You've heard of the dark side of the moon. Well, that's the dark side of the coin. The light side of that coin is men being selfless and heroic, being good hunters. Because what is a hero? Usually, you know, the traditional idea of a hero is a man who is capable of violence, but he's doing it for good. He's doing it in response to evil, but it's still violence. So you can see where that's the light side and doing violence for nefarious reasons, for personal reasons, vain reasons, for reasons of pleasure. You can see where that's the dark side of that, but it's still violence. And uh, I think sometimes society, even though it evolved organically, it does reinforce certain behaviors and encourage them in ways that certainly aren't for the best and many times are for the worst 
but we can't talk about society as if it's as as if it's this mythical force that exists independent of our nature. And so that's a huge problem I have with just the foundations of these conversations. Because you hear people talk about this and it's like, well, toxic masculinity, it's society encouraging men to behave a certain way. It's like, well, who created society? What was society reflecting? The origins of a given society. What, w- what was that reflecting? Well, uh, it's like this chicken and the egg argument, but instead of a chicken and the egg, it's like these things evolve simultaneously. But people have, they view society, because society is an abstract concept too. And so I think anytime something is abstracted to that degree, it allows people to talk about it as if it's, you know, the supernatural governing force. So that makes conversations about this very difficult is just having a radically different interpretation of what society is and what it means to be shaped by society. And, uh, you know, also not understanding that many of these great qualities that men have are actually connected. They share roots with some of these bad qualities, some of these tendencies, which is why you have to reinforce the light side. But some of these negative variations of that, some of these malignants, the malignant side, you know, some of that was reinforced during much darker times. So it's, it's a very complicated and difficult subject. But I do give a lot of pushback. Like, even though I acknowledge and listen to women when they say, like, we don't like it when men do this to us and treat us this way. I don't like it when they say, well, look at the way men do this with other men. You don't know anything about that. And the sorts of men who talk about that might not be the best sources either. They might be filled with resentment and spite. Not that they're completely wrong about all of it. Like I was talking to a friend, an old friend of mine who listens to this show, who's, I think he's probably in his early 50s now. I'm not sure his exact age, but he grew up in the Midwest. He's a generation older than I am. He has some different perspectives, and that's what I love about him is that we've been in contact for many years, and he has strong, well-thought-out opinions, but he doesn't always come to the same conclusions I do, and I like that. And he's actually he's contacted me before after listening to this show and given me pushback about some things here and there, and I appreciate that. But he was telling me how like he had a much different experience playing high school football in the Midwest in the 1980s, I think it was. And I respect that. Like he felt that, you know, there was this sort of uh, nasty macho energy and he got picked on and this and that. And that's real. It's not like it's not like there aren't bullies. It's not like there aren't groups of guys, macho guys who do mean things to other men and encourage bad behavior among each other. 
but that's not the sole story. And, you know, it's not like, it's like we've gotten so uh, caught up, but, you know, I've talked about this before, but it's like a lot of people's perception of football players, for example, comes from movies. I don't know very many people. I don't know anybody really outside of maybe a select few who were bullied by football players. But people have seen that in TV and movies, and I think they've forgotten that they themselves never experienced that or witnessed it. And I can tell you that some of those same behaviors existed among my friends who were artists and nerds. The nerds that I've known throughout my life, like I knew a bunch, I was friends with a bunch of nerds, video game guys, like before the idea of a gamer turned into what it is today. I had friends in high school who were definitely what you would call gamers. They were really nasty to each other. They could be really nasty to people. And I knew plenty of football players who were nothing but gentlemen, who were great people, who everybody admired. I knew some who were no good. I knew a football player. I played on a team with a football player who raped a girl. But uh, that wasn't the sole story, and it wasn't like the football players were encouraging each other to do that. But then you have stories like the Steubenville thing a few years ago where a bunch of football players, you know, had some sort of crazy party where they did sexually assault girls and they recorded video of themselves doing things. They created the evidence themselves, you know, so it's of course that stuff does happen. It's not at no point am I trying to deny that there is a malignant side and sometimes it can be reinforced. But you have people who are coming from the outside, like women are coming from the outside. They might experience some of that themselves in their interaction with men, but they're still approaching the interaction between men from the outside just by default. And even if they get the story from men, even if a man tells them, oh, well, this is what I experienced in high school where... This is what my dad said. This is what the other guys said and, you know, all that. You're still getting it secondhand. It's still being filtered through somebody's own biases. So it's an imperfect, you know, it's not an exact science to measure that. And my own experience is otherwise, too. And I don't think I'm anywhere close to alone when it comes to that. But crying is not something that anybody really had a big problem with. If you're doing it for reasons that other men feel are justified. But I can tell you something too. It's like women don't like it either when men cry for unnecessary reasons. Like I've had super liberal girlfriends who are, who are always talking about toxic masculinity who think that men should cry. But if you actually cry around them and it's, and it's unnecessary, like if you cry around some bullshit, they don't like it any more than you do. They don't like it any more than any man likes it. And that's not just conditioning. You could be like, oh, well, well, you know, some women have been conditioned to think that boys shouldn't cry either. Maybe so, but I think there's something intuitive that says men shouldn't just cry over nothing. They shouldn't cry for petty reasons. And I think there is something very deep-seated, like thinking about my evening, <laughs> thinking about my evening tonight of just listening to loud classical music 
and just reading story after story, watching video after video of men doing noble deeds, current men. You know, yeah, there were a couple things in there that were like, this, this gravestone is the grave of Joe blah, 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 who killed three British soldiers in the Revolutionary War, and he was found bayoneted with almost all of his blood gone. But he survived and lived to age 98. You know, there's stuff like that, too, that talks about men from history. But a lot of it was just stuff like, I mean, dads catching, like, their son is about to fall off a table. And and without looking, the dad just reaches out and catches the kid. Just intuitively senses that his kid is about to get injured. And he just reaches out and grabs the kid. You know, there's a lot of stuff like that. Just those sort of viral videos that people love. And I'm just sitting there with a tear coming to my eye watching it. But I think part of that was the music. That's the power of music. Like talking about Platoon bringing a tear to my eye. I think if that was just Elias running through the jungle as the helicopter takes off and the music wasn't playing or the music... Because the music in Platoon, at least for that scene, if it's not classical music, it's soundtrack music that's definitely mimicking classical music. It's the Elliot Offen crescendo building and just breaking open peaking and when you uh when you hear that music with that imagery it brings out your emotions because that's what music does and so i think i don't think that if i were looking through these stories of men doing good things just on its own i don't think that i would have been weeping but there was something about the music it was almost like it synced up like i would watch this video of a man doing something And, you know, the music was just perfect. It was cinematic. It was glorious. And so there's something about that, though. It's like when you're witnessing something glorious, whether it's somebody just doing something small to help somebody that they don't have to do, like a good Samaritan, or whether it's a man doing something in war, you know, that brings a tear to your eye. It speaks to you as a man. And uh, I personally love that feeling. I don't experience it very often. Like I had a friend, I had a buddy, haven't seen him for a while, but I still consider him a friend. He's a good guy. He cried a lot, a little bit too much though. Like, and I know I didn't lose any respect for him, but he was just a very emotional guy. Like anything touching. Like if we were all hanging out and somebody told a story about something, like he would just start weeping right there. And he wasn't a wimpy guy. You know, he was an artist, but he was really into sports and he was just a good, well-rounded guy and a great person, but he was just a very sensitive soul. And his girlfriend was a good friend of mine and she would kind of make fun of it a little bit. Like she liked it about him, but you could tell in a way though, it wasn't like she kind of made fun of made fun of it a little bit for the same reasons I was talking about a minute ago, which is that even though liberal women are against this toxic masculinity idea that like men shouldn't cry. They still feel a little bit weird when a man cries as often as a woman does. And I can tell you a hundred percent, having been close friends with both men and women, women cry significantly more for much smaller reasons, for personal reasons. Like I've worked with women and 
I've seen a bunch of them cry at work. Like if a woman has a bad interaction with the boss or gets in trouble, I've seen them just break down into tears. I don't think any less of them. That's just how they're responding to that. I've never seen a man do that. And I don't think that's because he's holding back. I think there's just something different. Usually a man is pissed. Like if the boss comes down on you for some bullshit reason, I think a man is just going to feel anger. Like, man, I wish that I could do something. I wish I could either tell that boss off, the boss off. I wish I could either tell him off or just hit him. And I can't, so I'm just going to be angry for a little bit. Whereas I think a woman's natural response is just the emotional tension just causes her to cry. It doesn't make her weak. But I've just known women, and including very empowered women, I've just simply known them to cry a lot more, like exponentially more often for smaller reasons. Most of them get over it. It's not like something that they're hung up on, but it's just that's their immediate response to a wider array of situations. And it seems, you know, and that's another thing, though, that people would be like, oh, we've been conditioned to do that. I don't think that's the whole story. I don't think you cry a lot because society told you that you need to be emotional all the time. I think that's just a function and it's a beautiful thing too because it's, you know, it plays into empathy. It plays into some of the natural tendencies women have, some of the warmth and connectivity that women have. Is the dark side of that a certain degree of hysteria? Yeah. But I don't think that that on its own is a bad quality at all. And it can often be used for good and is used for good. So none of this is just good or bad. But I have noticed that women cry a lot more. But, uh, you know, I spent the evening crying myself. And it was because what I was witnessing was glorious. You know, there's stuff in there that's just it just it just feels glorious to see it and it's all small time a lot of it's small time it's just it's not it's not guys you know I saw a picture the other day that was a guy I think it was during a it was some Eastern European war or a siege where it was this photo of a guy like he had his head wrapped in bandages his torso was wrapped in bandages he was bleeding. He was in military fatigues and he was, he had his gun and the story said that he was a, I believe a a Polish soldier. I know it was Eastern European, but I think he was Polish and he had been wounded in this conflict. I think it was, I don't know. I don't think it was war, but it was some sort of maybe like a terrorist siege and he had been wounded in this siege and he was going back in to continue fighting. And his brother had also been killed already. Like his brother was another soldier who had been killed in the same conflict that day or around that time. So here was a guy who had already been shot. He'd already been wounded. And he was going back in after his brother already died. And I don't know whether he was aware of it, but it's like stuff like that. It's just simply glorious. You know, it doesn't even matter what the nature of the conflict was like when you see a man doing that it speaks to you you feel something inside if i had been listening to classical music i'd probably be weeping when i saw that i didn't weep when i saw that one that was the other day 
but uh, when you when it's set to heroic, triumphant music, it really does bring something out of you. There is a power to that. And, you know, use music wisely. Like, as someone who doesn't listen to as much music as I used to, I'm very deliberate about it in recent years. I'm very aware of what it does to me. And I actually, I choose it much more deliberately. Like, I, when I was younger and I was just obsessed with music all the time, and, like, all of my spare time and energy was spent seeking out new music, seeking out old music, listening to music in all of my downtime... I didn't really think about the effect that it had on me. I either liked it or I didn't. And obviously I had discerning taste, but I either just liked it or I didn't. I didn't think about what it was actually doing to me, how it complemented what I wanted to do that day. And I don't listen to music that often when I work out. But when I do, it's like I always try to choose something that is going to get my adrenaline moving. And it's funny, too, because I can just be listening to music, and if it's particularly triumphant, I almost start to get these visions of conflict. Like, I almost feel like I start airboxing, and I don't, I don't care about martial arts or fighting or anything like that. I'm not into boxing. But it's almost like I start moving around the house, like having these self-defense fantasies. And I try to use that to my advantage on the rare occasions that I listen to music while I work out. And, you know, other people have their own versions of that. I know a lot of young guys today, probably not even young, probably any guy under the age of 50, like listens to a bunch of rap when he works out. And a lot of rap kind of has this thing where it's like, you know, I'm the best. There's nobody like me. I'm the best and there's nobody like me. Get in my way. Don't try to spite me. Stupid shit I'm doing right now. But um, that's where a lot of hip-hop has been for a while. It's like very, it's filled with self-praise. It's almost like, uh, it's like self-esteem boosting music. You listen to the best because I'm the best. I feel like that's what I hear half the time from all sorts of rap artists. Seems like a lot of it is just like, it's like a beat saying I'm the best. I'm the best. Oh, it's just, oh, that's that self-esteem music. You listen to that because people identify with lyrics more than I ever realized when I was younger. As somebody who wasn't, I've become more into lyrics over time, actually. But when I was younger, I didn't care about lyrics at all, unless it was particularly stupid. I just didn't really think about lyrics that much. But I realized that people really identify with lyrics. Like, they... It's almost like a fantasy where they're the person saying that. So like when a guy is listening to rap in the gym on his headphones and it's like, I'm the best, nobody can keep up, you know, they're thinking that and that's giving them some sort of adrenaline boost. But for me, that comes in the form of a melody. Like listening to some guy say that shit doesn't do anything for me. For me, it's like there's a certain triumph and it doesn't have to be like a Wagner sort of just what you would expect of a triumphant melody a triumphant symphonic melody i mean it could be actually kind of a strange melody that speaks to me more than anything you know thinking about certain genres i'm into it could be just a particularly strange melody but it's very melody focused nonetheless like rhythm doesn't do that for me not that rhythm does nothing like if i'm listening to a metal band the drummer, I'm certainly paying attention to the drums and like just, you know, 
the drummer doing like a particularly interesting little tappy thing, what we call a tappy thing, on the ride cymbal bell might be like, might blow my mind and I might get an adrenaline rush from that. But it's usually in tandem with a, a good melody. But I'm just not a very rhythm-focused guy, and I can just listen to a pure melody on its own, even without a drum behind it. And it'll do something for me. It'll motivate me, or at least engage my brain in a certain way. But that's very important to me. I, I'm very sensitive to melody in the sense that a lot of melodies I just can't handle. They're either too obvious and paint-by-numbers, or they're just bland. But there's, a, I respond very strongly to a certain way of constructing melody, and I wouldn't be able to break it down here. You know, a lot of it's just taste. My friend Miles has a very similar sensibility when it comes to that. When we became friends, that was a lot of what we talked about. We would play each other music and talk about specific riffs and notes down to the single note where it's like you'll hear a good guitar riff but just one note can completely ruin it and one note can completely make it and you know my experience listening to classical music as somebody who's not a connoisseur of classical music and who honestly like when i listen to these like like listening to like eight and a half hours of classical music today a lot of it's like, oh, yeah, like I can remember the Looney Tunes cartoon that used this. A lot of the way that we're introduced to classical music, if you're from my generation, is through like parody almost. And not even almost. A lot of the times it is kind of this parody or this juxtaposition where like, oh, yeah, the first time I ever heard Wagner was probably on like Daffy Duck. It was probably Bugs Bunny or something because they used to always use that stuff. So it's nice sometimes to kind of decontextualize it where it's like, oh, yeah, the first time I ever heard this, you know, well-known classical piece was actually when it was used as this sort of juxtaposition for something silly. I mean, it's something that you used to see in a lot of movies of all kinds when I was growing up, where like a movie would use classical music for kind of a slapstick scene because it's juxtaposition, it's contrast. It's like what makes this even funnier and sort of surreal is that we're playing this epic music, truly epic music, to show something kind of silly or absurd. And I don't have a problem with that. That's a cool technique, actually. The fact that cartoons at a certain point, very early in the history of animation and film and TV, were like, you know, it would be cool if we took Wagner and made it the background to this weird anthropomorphic cartoon like i wish i'd if i lived back then i wish i was the guy who did that but it doesn't change the fact that that was my generation's introduction to a lot of that music you either heard it in this sort of parody form like that in movies and cartoons or you heard it in like when you'd see like a live symphony a school symphony and that doesn't always lend itself to classical music either. Like seeing a bunch of nerds in a theater, like ha like hammering away at their violins and everything, that's not really my ideal atmosphere for this stuff. 
Like, it's impressive and cool that they play that, and I have, I have no problem. Like, it's great that nerds play orchestral music and are good at it. But it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the music either. Like, it doesn't necessarily give you a good visual, and it can be kind of distracting, too. And so, like, listening to classical today, it was like, sometimes I have to, like, stop and just remember that this is a laser entering my brain. I have to just hear it for exactly what it is, which is a really unique and phenomenal sound. And here I am. Let me explain to you what classical music is. But, uh, you know, I have to kind of detach myself from the impression of it that I was given as a child in order to appreciate it now. And I, of course, don't appreciate it all. Like a lot of it, like I said, whether it's because of those experiences of just kind of taking it for granted and hearing it in so many different places growing up, you know, a lot of it does just become this audio wallpaper. Well, like very rarely do you see wallpaper in a building, even a cool, you know, antique building and a cool, you know, historic architecture building filled with antiques you know it's like even if you see cool wallpaper and you're like oh that's cool wallpaper you still don't think of it the same way you would think of art on its own being cool or good and so even if the classical music is pleasant it can very much feel like you're just taking in this audio wallpaper it's something that is that you know is pleasing it's often presented in this very neutral way this very flat way but then there are moments where it, you know, it peaks and you'll hear a particular arrangement or a particular melody that reminds you, oh, this is actually far, this is actually far more um, psychoactive than I give it credit for. And I also try to imagine hearing this as it emerged and to live in a culture and a society where that was emerging and what that would have been like. And I don't do that with a lot of music because I think you should be able to appreciate things now for what they are now. But I do kind of try to remind myself that there was a time where like this is what the culture was producing. And it, it is a very psychoactive experience when you're in that state of mind. When you're hearing it exactly as it is without all of this other context that's been attached to it. Without thinking of it as soundtrack music, as background music as glorified Muzak. Because that's kind of the impression that I think my generation developed about classical, probably a little bit older generations too, where it was almost like grandiose Muzak. And you tended to treat it that way. So being able to detach yourself from that gives you a greater appreciation. And having a day once or twice a year where you put that on, especially around the holidays, because I can tell you that I can't just sit around listening to Christmas music. I can't sit around listening to Christmas music, okay? I like Christmas. I love the atmosphere of Christmas. I've always been a big fan of Christmas time. But I can't be one of those guys who sits around just listening to Christmas music. I just can't do it. But listening to classical music this time of year, it sort of fills the same void without playing those same cliche Christmas songs. So I like that. It's nice to be able to do that now and again, and it's nice that it provides the backdrop for a good weep. A nice good weep. 
And I think men understand that that is manly. Men understand that there's a time and a place where it's completely acceptable to cry. And I think most of them understand that too. And maybe somebody's pathological, maybe some times and places take it to a pathological degree where it's just like, oh, you should never cry. Boys don't cry. But, you know, you know, there's a reason why stoicism is attractive. And I'm not going to go on a whole thing about stoicism here. But stoicism isn't just suppressing your natural feelings. It's discipline. It's self-control. And that's what that is. Like having the idea that you shouldn't just freely show emotion all the time for any and every reason. Even if that's what you're feeling. And I don't know that what measurable impact it has to kind of have some level of emotional discipline, especially when it comes to weeping. Like, does holding back tears actually cause measurable damage? I'm sure they've done some kind of psychological study that says it's not good for you, like holding in gas or something. I don't know, though. That might be different than having discipline than having kind of a standard for when and how it's okay to cry. But I can tell you when I have times like today, it felt totally fine because it wasn't sad. You know, it wasn't a sad cry. It wasn't a wail. It wasn't a sob. It was just tears coming to your eyes. And as someone who doesn't cry very often, that always feels good. I embrace it. You know, I don't, and then it comes and it goes. But the right stories, the right atmosphere, those do something for you. And you know what I have to say too? When I was looking at these stories, and it's so ridiculous, like I was looking at a website. I was looking at a website and just crying. But, you know, when I was reading these stories, listening to this profound music, it just made the whole experience feel that much more profound. I did think to myself, as I was like, what am I doing complaining about stuff? Why do I have all these stupid cultural critiques anyway? Why am I bothered by this? You know, it really makes you think about what matters to you. And in that moment earlier tonight, like I couldn't even imagine doing another podcast where I complain about something or I observe something that I don't think is good, even if it's not something that I'm enraged over, just commenting on something that I find irritating or analyzing something that I don't agree with. It's those moments where you're kind of like, why do I even do that? Well, because I'm fallen, because I'm a human. There's an intake and an outtake. There's an exhaust. You know, we have to release steam somehow. And it's probably better to do that. But still, it's funny when you have those moments where you're just like, you feel this profundity, if that's the right word. And you're just like, why do I do that? And I mean, some people have that experience on psychedelics. So I can tell you earlier tonight, like I was describing just a second ago, like classical music is sometimes taking on this psychoactive property. And that's what it was like reading these stories where I was like, this is reality. 
This is what needs to be emphasized. Good deeds set to beautiful music, <laughs> you know? But you can't live in that world all the time. You can't live in a world where you're just witnessing and especially doing good deeds all the time. I mean, you can try to. You can be ready to do good deeds when you have the opportunity. But you can't set out into the world and be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save somebody from getting hit by a train today and possibly sacrifice my own life in the process. Because that's the other thing you see when you're reading these stories. It's like this little boy. It's like the sort of stuff like it's like chain email sort of stuff. But it, it still speaks to me where it's like this little boy, like his sister was getting attacked by a pit bull and he threw himself in front of her and had it had his face like torn in half and had to have it sewn back together and he says that he would do it all over again. You know, you have stories like that, but it's like, that's not an everyday experience. Like, you can't just wake up and go, like, I'm going to save somebody's life today. Like, there was a story about a kid who, he and his friend were hiking or, or out in the woods or something, and uh, they got attacked by a bear, and it killed his friend. And then the other kid killed the bear. And I mean, he got nearly killed himself. He got mauled horrifically. But this bear killed his friend, and then he killed the bear after getting mauled while getting mauled himself. And so it's these stories of sacrifice. It's these stories of heroism. But it's like you can't just wake up and go, you know what? Like, I've been complaining about things too much. I think today I'm going to, you know, if a bear attacks my friend, I'm going to kill the bear. You know, it's just, it's, you know, you're... You're both lucky and unlucky if that's even a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, uh, you know, you might just... That kid might just as well have gotten killed, too. You know, it just happened to work out. It was probably a partially a matter of luck. Who knows? Or fate. He was meant to kill that bear who killed his friend. But it's very easy for me in that moment to be like, I can't imagine ever being a piece of shit ever again. <laughs> I can't ever imagine being a fucking blowhard piece of shit ever again. I'm listening to classical music, scrolling some website that shows heroic stories and cool things that men have done. I'm never going to do anything shitty ever again. I'm never going to say anything stupid ever again. Kind of like how I felt when my mom died. Like I had this two-week period where I felt... You know, something close to enlightened, where it was just like everything was just... It was almost like if you've ever sprayed your windshield with that stuff. I don't even know what it is, but it makes raindrops just slide off. Like, you don't even have to use your windshield wipers. Raindrops just, like, slide up vertically. Like, the wind makes them just slide off. It's the most interesting thing. Um, where it's like, yeah, you don't even have to use your wipers. It just it makes your windshield slick, and rain just kind of disappears. Like, that's how I felt two years ago, you know, right now, you know, two years ago, yesterday, where it was like, I felt like I was in this state where I couldn't imagine, like, I remember saying to myself back then, I was like, I'll never be superstitious again. You know, this experience has made it so that I don't think I'll ever be hung up on some of the weird little preoccupations I have. I don't think I'll ever be hung up on some of the superstitions that govern part of my life. And then sure enough, like a month passes, two months pass, and guess what? I'm getting superstitious again. Guess what? I'm complaining about something again. 
So, you know, it's good that you reach those points where you're kind of like, I'm having a moment here. I'm having a moment here where I'm feeling something profound. Maybe I'm witnessing something profound and I can't ever imagine being a petty, fallen piece of shit ever again. But then guess what? You know, a week later, an hour later, you're being a petty, fallen piece of shit, you know? So that's just the nature of, of what we are and who we are. But anyway, that was my evening. Look up Elegant Elliot often. I'm going to play that melody one more time, just in case. I'm going to play that little melody. Please, please, please. I hope that I figure it out. I might end up listening to like 16 more hours of classical music to try to figure this out. But this is so god dang familiar to me. I know this song, but I just, I don't know what it is. If you know what this is, and I haven't somehow found it out on my own, please let me know. Give me leads. At least give me leads, you know. We're looking for leads. Something. I'm twisting the key. It's like I can hear singing. I don't know if there are lyrics. In my mind, there are lyrics that go along with this. Like, like, is there is there a lyric that's like, oh, where, oh, where has my so and so gone? Maybe that. Maybe I should just look that up. Maybe I don't need you after all. Maybe I don't need you and your leads if you were even going to help me anyway. But I feel like I can hear lyrics that say like, oh, where, oh, where has my such and such gone. Maybe I figured it out. I don't know. If I haven't, let me know. Let me know anyway. Even if I figured it out, pretend I haven't and let me know. Prove your worth if you listen to this. If you st- Anybody who still listens to this, prove your worth. Let me know what that is. Okay.